From Helping Out Mission, this is a shot of hope. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. I've been making this podcast for over five years now, and I'm always trying to improve to make it better. In fact, my goal is to make one of your favorite shows. I'd love to know how that's going. And I put together a little survey. It won't take long, I promise. But even if this is the first episode of this podcast that you've ever listened to, I would love for you to fill it out. The link is in the show notes. It's hum.page.link slash survey. So hum.page.link slash survey. It's a bunch of questions, but they're almost all multiple choice. Don't overthink it. Just go with your gut. It will help me to make a better podcast. I'll remind you again about this at the end of this episode, but thanks. And thank you for listening. I've enjoyed getting to know Jeremy over the past two years now. He came into the program here at Helping a Mission angry and terrified. And he's living now with more freedom and happiness than I think he ever could have imagined was possible. He also just came on staff at the mission this summer. He's working as part of our facilities team. So I'm proud to now count him as a colleague in this work. Jeremy's story, like all of our stories, starts when he was very young. In fact, the first thing you'll hear is two of his earliest childhood memories, and they're not pleasant ones. Jeremy's life, and especially his childhood, were marked by trauma and abuse. I don't know if any episodes of this podcast are what I would call light listening, but this episode is a particularly tough one. There are some mature themes, including descriptions of abuse. There's some mature language, so consider this your content advisory warning. Don't know if I've ever given one of those on this podcast before, but like I said, it's intense. It's ultimately beautifully redemptive, but can you really have one without the other? The other thing I should mention is that in a couple weeks, I'm going to be speaking at the CityGate Network Conference. It's a national conference of organizations like Helping Out Mission, and it's meeting in Baltimore this year, which is kind of fun. I'm giving one session on podcasting. So if you're going to be there and you're listening to this podcast, we should totally talk. Another one of the seminars that I'm going to be presenting at is about trauma healing. A key part of Jeremy's process was a group that he participated in called a trauma healing group and Jeremy is going to be sharing some of his story at that seminar with me as well. And then one note on the context of this recording, most of the interviews on this podcast are recorded in my office. This recording was actually in our classroom. Over the course of several classes, my colleague Mike and I asked Jeremy to share his story in detail, and I stuck a mic on him with his permission, of course, and recorded it. That accounts for both the difference in the audio quality, but also just a little difference in the way he's speaking. You know, he's not speaking to one person, he's speaking to group. So it almost feels like you're sitting in on a meeting. All right, enough of me talking. Let's get to Jeremy's story. To understand my story, you have to understand how it started. So imagine I lived in Southwest Baltimore in Rojel. How we ended up with a wood burning stove? I don't know, we have one. Well, in the summer, we would line our yard with wood. And my abuser was my stepdad. He was not just physically abusive, he was mentally abusive. And how we combine the two is the story that I'm about to tell you. In the back of our yard, after the wooded season from the summer, we would go chop the wood. You know what a chopping block is? He would put smaller logs on top of that. And at six years old, he'd make me hold the log while he swung the axe at me. Don't let the wood go, because if you do, I'm going to fuck you up. So imagine at six years old, having someone swing an axe at you, someone that you trust and is supposed to care for you and love you, mentally torture you with the possibility of physical abuse. And then if I did drop the log, I'd get hit. That's the type of person he was. I was five years old. And the only reason I remember this is because it was so traumatic. I was in kindergarten and they had two separate classes, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And I was in the afternoon class and my stepdad was asleep on the couch. I'm 
guessing because he was taking a nap before he had to take me to school. In our kitchen, we had this old clock with the analog clocks on it, and it said 11 o'clock. I knew I was supposed to be at school at 11 o'clock. So I saw at 11 o'clock. What I didn't realize is that that clock was two hours fast. School was only a couple blocks away. I knew where it was. I knew how to get there because I walked there every day. It was in my neighborhood. So I didn't wake my dad, my stepdad up. I walked to school. When I got there, the morning class was still in there and I was confused. But the teacher saw me there and she went and called my stepdad. So my stepdad came in and got me and he beat me to the point where I pissed my pants. And that was before we got in the car. Then when we got in the car before he left, he beat me again. And then when I stopped at the red light, he put the car in park and he turned around and he beat me again. Then the next red light did the same thing. Third red light turned around and beat me in my face. Told me to stop crying. How dare you piss yourself? Look at you. Then he took me to my grandmother's house, his mother, beat me again in front of her. She did nothing. What did he do was her response. That's the type of person he was. That's the type of torture I lived with every day for 12 years. It wasn't just enough for him to physically abuse me. He knew if he wanted it to stick, which it seemed like he did, he had to ingrain it mentally and he knew how to do that and he did he had this thing where he would put me up against the wall and he beat negative affirmations into me you ain't shit you ain't never gonna be shit you're fucking worthless and he'd hit me so hard that it bruised my chest it's almost like he knew what he was doing that went on until I was 12 years old because I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I've seen a lot of things in my life and remember it. I blocked out so much of my childhood that it's too traumatic for me even to deal with as an adult. To have somebody tell me that I need to deal with that is, it's more than scary, it's life-threatening. But that's what I came here to deal with. That's why I came to the home because I know without dealing with that that trauma. I'm going to stay sick. And I don't want to be sick anymore. I've always had some basis of faith. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it's instilled in me, how I've continued to carry it after all that I've seen, all that's been done to me, all that I've done to myself, and to still have a belief in God, to know that I can pray and he'll answer my prayers. Where that came from, I don't know. It could have been my mom. My mom and I would watch, while my brothers and sister were watching scary movies downstairs, I hated scary movies, we would go in her bedroom and read the Bible. I didn't remember any of it. I just remembered that moment being with a loving, caring mom. But then the next day, she'd watch my dad beat the fuck out of me. And then she'd take me to church with her, to Sunday school. So my, that's where my distortion of God started. How can you do that to an innocent child? That's just to God. My mom, how could you watch that man do that to me and allow it and then justify it and be okay with it? How insecure are you? I mean, it took me a while to realize, you know, that that was her stuff. It wasn't anything that I did. Even with him, you know, his abuse, that was his stuff. It wasn't mine. It's taken me till I got here to realize that. And the spiritual awakening that I had to see it for what it was. At 12 years old, I had free reign. Didn't have to go to school anymore. I could run the streets, stay out late as I wanted. I could do whatever I wanted. And what did I do? I did as much drugs as I could do. Filled that void inside of me with whatever I could possibly get my hands on. Most of the time, I sniffed glue because it made me unconscious to everything in life. 
my thoughts, my life, how bad it sucked. The abuse that I had been through, it just, it, I didn't have to deal with reality. My reality was whatever I made it. And I lived like that for, I don't know, three or four years until there was a geographical change that kind of sobered me up for a little bit. It wasn't long, maybe a year or two. Right off the jump, I got, I had abandonment issues. I had trust issues. I didn't trust anyone. I was 18. I was at a party. Someone laid out a line of some heroin and said, look, try this. That was it for me. I think I, I said this in a meeting. That was the warm blanket out of the dryer. Wrap it around yourself, lose yourself in it. And I did because it felt too good. I didn't have to deal with life. I'm an introvert. It made me an extrovert. It made me everything I wanted. Not everything I wanted. Everything I thought people wanted me to be. Everybody else's perception of me. That's how heroin made me feel. It made me feel like Superman. I could do whatever I wanted. I could accomplish anything, no matter how false that was. Because it was definitely false. My addiction progressed pretty quickly then. It was just once a week, every other week at parties. Then it became, you know, daily and wasn't a habit. Then it became, I had to cop before work, had to cop after work, maybe once or twice during the day if I can get away with it. And that was it. Always had some bit of faith in God. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how it was, how it's been instilled. I don't know how I've kept a hold of it for so long after all that I've done to myself and that's been done to me. At 23, I prayed to God. I'll never forget it. It was, it was New Year's Eve. I was laying alone, dope sick in my apartment. And I, for once, got honest with God. I asked for help. I asked for a real family. I asked for healing. I asked for serenity. I asked for everything I never had growing up. And I went to sleep and I woke up the next day and believe it or not, my, my, my prayer was answered. My uncle called and asked me if I wanted to move to Michigan. A, a geographical change. Great. Nobody knows me there. My trauma can't follow me there. You know, but look, I know some people hate the cliches, but wherever you go, there you are. I thought moving to Michigan would heal me somehow. My addiction would just disappear. So I moved to Michigan. My uncle offered me a job and I met the most wonderful woman I've ever met in my life who ended up being my wife and the mother of my two children. I had a beautiful home, white picket fence. Every material thing you could have or ask for, I had. Six-figure income wasn't enough. My kids weren't enough. I allowed my addiction to tell me that my kids were better off without me. What do I know about love? All I've ever experienced in my life was hatred and abuse. I didn't want to put that off on them, even though I wasn't that guy. You know, I coached their softball teams, their soccer teams, their, their t-ball games. You know, I was that really good dad. Everybody else saw the good in me, the good person that I was, the honest, caring person. The most important person didn't see it, and that was me. I couldn't see it. I was blinded to it. I'd left my wife and my kids 10 years ago. I left because I was in active addiction. I tried to white knuckle it. I mean, I'm sure like a lot of addicts did. I didn't go to a program. I didn't try counseling. I didn't do nothing. I thought the geographical change would be enough. Ignoring it is the better option because then I don't have to deal with any of it. I, that's exactly what I did time and time and time again. So it actually got to the point where my wife was going to have me physically removed from my own home by the police. The police showed up with uh, a writ for me to go to court to prove why I should be allowed to stay in my own home because I bought my kids Christmas presents and I sold them the day after. And I convinced myself that it was okay because I bought those presents and I'll replace them sometime later. And I understand why my wife did what she did. She was protecting my kids. And I, I, I love her for it. You know, for having the strength and courage to put someone she loved and wanted to spend the rest of her life out 
But she wasn't even worried about her own welfare. She was worried about my kid, and I wasn't. So I talked myself into to run it back to Maryland because the solution is here. For some reason, it wasn't. It wasn't the solution. I knew what I was doing. I was making it so I can continue to use at whatever cost. So when I moved back here, it made it easier for me to use because now that guilt and shame that I had from leaving my kids and my wife, I could sit in that and justify why I use for however much longer. And that was 2009. I haven't stopped getting high since then. Many trips to jail, many recovery programs, many outpatients, many therapists. Wasn't enough. It just, it, it wouldn't stick. One time I, I got arrested. I was at the homeless shelter in Catonsville on Wade Avenue. I go in the bathroom stall at After Lights Out and I put one in me. And I, all I remember are like still images of me kung fu fighting some poor dude in the dorm. And I wake up and I'm handcuffed to the chair in the director's uh, office and there's a cop sitting next to me. So he puts me in the back of the police car and I have sweatpants on and I kind of remembered I put the two pills of dope inside the little jawstring holes in my sweatpants. I get the bright idea to lay out line of dope on the bench seat of the back of this police car. He's never going to see me. And he didn't. So I, I don't even know how, to, I, honestly, I don't even know how I did it with my arms behind my back. But I managed and I had to find a way. I found a way to do it. So I sniff this line of dope and think, all right, great. I'll be good till they let me out on my own recon. He gets me out of the car and he takes me up to the door to take me inside. And he kind of turns around and looks at me. And he said, the fuck is wrong with you? The pill of dope was stuck to the side of my nose. And he didn't say it to be smart. He said it like inside, what is wrong with you? Do you see the insanity of what you're doing? And that, that hit home. I went to court and the judge asked me, he said, well, Mr. Bellows, you've already been here for 90 days. Your charges only carry 60 days. What do you want me to do with you? So actually the first time in my life, I was honest. I said, if you let me out, I will kill myself. Or you'll see me again in a month with a brand new set of charges. I said, I need help. I said, I can't do it on my own. He got me into a great program in Owens Mills. I embraced it at, at first. I started my own business while I was still in this rehab. I got everything back. But one thing I didn't do is deal with the reason behind my addiction. It wasn't just using. I didn't deal with the 85%. So when I left the last rehab, that started the run that brought me here, an eight-year run. For me to be willing to get help this time, I had to get broken. I mean, not just mentally and physically, but spiritually broken. And I'll tell you how that happened. Me and my younger brother, my little brother, after my dad had left and my mom, you know, disappeared, we were all each other had. You know, we vowed to each other that we'd take care of each other at all costs, no matter what. And we did for the rest of our lives. You know, there was never any judgment we used together. We never got clean together. We lived together. We took care of each other, you know, for 35 years. No matter what, whenever one of us picked up the phone, the other would always answer. And I got in my truck when I lived in Michigan when I heard he was living in a, an abandoned warehouse down here in Baltimore shooting dope and coke. And I came and made him get in my truck and took him to Michigan with me. I mean, those were the links that we went to for each other because we knew we were all, we were the only people that we both could trust that wouldn't judge one another. So when I say we were close, we weren't just close. We weren't just best friends. I mean, we were more than friends. I didn't hear from him for a couple of days. What had happened was he died, overdosed. They brought him back. They had to hit him like six or seven times and they brought him back. He told me what happened. And then he told me what they diagnosed him with when he was there. His pancreas was bad. He had the 
uh, early stages of cirrhosis of the liver, and he was diagnosed with HIV. My reply to that was to him was that, you know, look, it's not that bad. They have medicine. You can be undetectable. You know, it's not that bad. His reply to me was, it's easy for you to say it ain't your life. And this is your fault anyway. You gave me that. You gave me AIDS. My brother in, at the end thought that I gave him a dirty needle. So the last conversation I had with my brother was, you know, him accusing me of being the cause of his, his illness. This was at Christmas. A few days passed after Christmas, January 3rd, 2019, he went home from the hospital and he grabbed his phone, found the text message I sent him, took the two pills of dope and killed himself. And I gave him the dope that he did that with. Somebody I promised to protect. You know, somebody who I had taken care of my whole life and who had taken care of me. My soul broke that day. When I say that, I mean, I felt something in the core of my body break. And there wasn't no, at that time, there was no coming back for it. I decided in that moment that life wasn't worth living anymore. I was going to do whatever it took to kill myself. Not by pistol, because I'm afraid of pain. If I wasn't afraid of pain, I wouldn't be using but I knew if I used fentanyl long enough and as much as I could, eventually I'd just go to sleep and wouldn't wake up anymore. So for the next year, that's what I did every single day. I wake up in some bando or in some backyard, disappointed that God woke me up, disappointed that I had to live another day in pain. I can't even get my death right, is what I was telling myself. So, December 18th, I went and copped 10 pills of dope. And I pulled into a gas station across from Mount St. Joseph High School in this little neighborhood up towards Catonsville. And I put two pills of fentanyl in me in the hopes that it would kill me. But it didn't. It wasn't enough. I was still conscious. So I loaded three needles up with the rest of the dope that I had. Now, what happened next is kind of blurry. All I remember is putting the car in reverse and driving down Frederick Avenue. And the next thing I remember was waking up with my face in an airbag inside of my face tore up. My intake picture shows it. And that's what I said earlier about, I didn't find this out until I went to court for the charges that I got. But apparently, like I said, I didn't just nod out. I accelerated before I hit this car because I wasn't done trying to kill myself. What really hit me is that I wasn't just trying to kill myself. I could have killed somebody else for, and for what? Because my pain was too much to bear. I took, I tried to take somebody else's life. I woke up on the floor of bookings a few hours later and you know, this time I didn't pray to get me out of jail, get me out of the trouble that I was in, I surrendered. By surrender, I mean I gave up fighting anymore, fighting for my life, fighting for my sobriety. I'm done. My life is yours. Now what? This is my conversation I'm having to God on the floor surrounded by sweaty meat sandwiches and empty milk cartons curled up in the corner. I get out on my own recon and First thought was go get high. That's what I did. I went up to Monroe and McHenry Street and dope fiend somebody into giving me a well shot and a place to get high. And this guy who sold two tools, I didn't know him from Adam, said, you know, I got you. You can go to my place, I'll hook you up. So I go into this bando and it's extension cord electric, ran from somebody else's house out back. I go inside, I can't think of anything or see anything other than stop the pain, get high as quick as you can. So that's what I did. I put what he gave me up in me and there was no real effect other than a realization. I started looking around at where I, I had, this is where I'm at, surrounded by a hundred full piss bottles, a thousand broken and 
untopped needles. Yellow tops, red tops, purple tops, glass files everywhere. A pile of clothes that God knows how long they've been there and, and stinking. And I'm sitting there and, and this is your life now. This is how you're going to spend the next 10 years of your life. And in that moment, I was okay with it. I was fine. I was willing to do that. But then something just told me that I, you're better than this. So I called my girlfriend at the time, and so she picks me up, and a friend of mine had come through this program twice. And he's been trying to get me to come here for two years, but I just wasn't ready and didn't want to come. But for some reason that night when she came and picked me up from the city and took me out to her house and said, look, you got to figure out what you're going to do. My friend called me, messaged me, and just asked how I was doing. And I was, again, I was honest. And I told him, you know, what had happened and where I was at and that I wanted to give up. He said, look, he's like, I'll make a phone call for you. He's like, but you need to be down at the mission at 6 a.m. I went to sleep for the first time without having to put another shot of dope in me. I woke up for the first time not sick. How that's possible is only by God's grace. For any addict, heroin or fentanyl addict knows the first thing you think of when you get up is getting that well shot. That's what I thought every morning. That obsession and that compulsion to just get that one. I didn't have that that morning for some reason. My only thought was to get here because I needed to be here. When I got here, my girlfriend dropped me off and I come inside the door and I'm in my pockets and I got my girlfriend's debit card. And by now I'm starting to get sick and I'm already buying cartons of cigarettes and selling up on the camera streets so I can go get one more because who comes to rehab sober? Nobody I know. I know I never did. So I tried to dope my way out the door, but luckily Ben Riggins caught me and said, look, man, I don't think you should go out there by yourself. After that, I finally get up to where I sleep now. And at this point, the anxiety starts setting in. Why didn't I get high one more time? You can't do this. You know, there's no way you're going to withdraw in this bunk for the next however long it's going to take. I never withdrew from fentanyl before. Heroin, I knew it was like five days, but the horror stories I heard and that I went through when I first got here, my sickness lasted three and a half months. Heavy. I mean, my body weighed a thousand pounds and I had to walk up and down them steps every single day, but I was willing to do it to get better. That first day, I couldn't sit still. The one and only time I've ever been in the wreck in this building was the first day I got here. There's no reason for me to be there. I just don't go there. But that morning, something said, go down to the wreck. So I'm walking down to the wreck and I get right outside of the chapel and I don't know what it was. I don't know what drew me in, but something drew me inside of the chapel. And there wasn't anybody in there. So I go in there and I sat down and I actually, I looked up at the cross and I said, okay, now what? And I heard a voice, not an audible voice, but like, you know how everybody's got, you got your inner dialogue, how you talk to yourself inside your head. I heard something say, let it go. And when I heard that, I felt, I don't know what it was, but I felt my eyes well up. And I sat in that chapel and I cried like an unconsolable child for an hour and a half, letting go of the last 40 years of pain, agony, undealt with grief for the passing of my brother, my mother. I mean, just pure sadness. I had never cried in my life like that, ever. I mean, I, I think the only time in my life I ever cried were when my sons were born. And those didn't even feel as real as the emotion that I felt in that chapel. And that kind of started me on a journey to, you know, all right, what do you want to do while you're here? What are you going to do? Just getting sober is not going to be enough. Just staying clean is not going to be enough. What's it going to take to get it this time? So I prayed for the first time, you know, in a really long time an honest prayer for help, you know, not to get me out of, you know, jail or some bad situation, but for healing, for a relationship, you know, for spiritual healing. Cause I felt broke. I felt really broke when I came in here. 
I'll tell you all one thing about this build. There isn't nothing in this building that you can't accomplish or isn't readily available for you. Closed mouths aren't gonna get fed. Whatever help you need, find the person who's got it. Might not have to be staff, it could be, you know, one of you guys. I found guys who had what I wanted. And the journey that I started, when I say that I surrendered, I put my life in those guys' hands because I make horrible decisions with my own life. I, I made the decision to walk away from my kids. I, I made the decision to try to kill myself every day for a year. Those are the decisions I made. I literally told them, look, for the next year, I'll bring all of my decisions to you guys and let you guide me on what should be done because I can't do it. It's like with the steps, I can't, you can. That's my level of surrender. That's where I had to be. And I mean, it's another cliche, but I had to be willing to be completely honest, open-minded and willing. Honest about every aspect of my life and honest to the point where it's, who are you when nobody's looking? Who I can be, what type of character that takes. I had to be open-minded to want to change and willing to change all my bad habits, willing to change all the things I had been stuck in for years, you know, willing to let go of my shame, guilt, the trauma, and willing to pursue a relationship with God because I knew up until this point that I had been trying to carry all my burdens alone and they're heavier than I can bear. I need help. And there was no one else in my life that was willing to help because I burned every bridge I ever had. You know, I came in this program alone. No family, no friends, no nothing. I knew God was the answer and I didn't know how to seek him out. So my TC, he asked me, you know, when I first met him, what it was that I needed to work on. And one of the, the biggest thing I needed to work on was the situation with my little brother, my role in his death and me not being able to grieve his loss. I wasn't able to mourn for him at all. I couldn't face my family. I didn't go to his viewing because I couldn't, because I was so trapped in the guilt and the shame that I had for the role that I played. My family blamed me to this day for what happened to him. And they don't know what happens, but you know, even now they still aren't ready to talk to me. And I understand because I took something from them that was very important. And it was, you know, it was very important to me too. So I knew that that was the first thing that I, I needed to get through. The second thing was I needed a stronger relationship with God because to deal with the third thing, which was the trauma from my childhood and bringing up all those, those feelings and, you know, not wanting to run from them, not wanting to, you know, escape all that pain and that agony. I needed God first. And I didn't know how else to do that. I didn't like it. I didn't like the advice they had because um, every time I went to them, suggested that I sit with what I was going through, sit with the sadness, sit with the guilt, sit with it. And I, at first I just rebelled against it. I didn't want to sit with it. Who the hell wants to sit and feel bad constantly all day, every day, and not want to run from it, find some type of relief. And that's, you know, the way I viewed it. But I had to look at it from another aspect that, you know, I had to go through it to get through it. I sat with it for a long time and Matt asked me to write a letter. I didn't know how to process grief. I never had. I mean, I didn't grieve when my mom died 10 years ago. It, I was indifferent to it. When she died, I, I felt no emotion about it. I, I was, you know, relieved in a sense that, you know, she wasn't in pain anymore, but I didn't allow myself to grieve for the loss of my mother. I just avoided it. I put that back to the farthest reaches of my mind so I didn't have to deal with it. So Matt said, write a letter to your brother as if he was, you know, still here and you wanted to, you know, tell him what your role was in it, how it made you feel. And then, you know, let all your sadness out on paper. And that was easy for me to do because to write it down is nothing because it's just words on paper. And he made me bring it back to him 
And I brought it back to him and I, I thought he was just going to read it and we were going to talk about it. But he made me read it out loud. And I couldn't even get through the first few words without crying unconsolably, letting all that grief and anger out. And I, in the moment, I was, I was mad that he was making me do it because I felt horrible. I felt all that guilt and all that shame. But what I realized now is what I felt was it leaving. I wasn't holding it in anymore. I was actually letting it go. For me, it's not real until I say it. The words on paper are just that. If I don't share it with anybody, they just stay that, just words on paper. But to actually speak that stuff to somebody else, I'm forcing myself to deal with it, to let it go, to let it out. So I don't have to keep burying it with drugs or women or money or cars or whatever. I'm actually forcing myself to let it out. And it took quite a while for me to get through that whole letter because I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't really even talk because it hurt so much. After I was done, it, it was a huge release because in reading that letter, I actually was grieving for him leaving his loss and not being here anymore and letting go of some of the guilt and shame that I felt for you know, my role in his death. And then I shared it with Rollo and I didn't cry as much. You know, it just got easier for me to deal with. The more I shared it, the more I spoke it, the more it became real and the easier it became for me to deal with every time. I, and not once did I think about running out the door and going and getting hot. And that's usually my first reaction is don't deal with it. Run from it, bury it. Who wants to deal with that? I know I sure didn't. So we got through that. And then the next step was my relationship with God, because I knew I needed him to accomplish the next step. And what started happening when I started dealing with my relationship with God was I started getting really angry. I mean, not just angry, but rage. When someone would talk to me about God, I'd grab hold of a chair and I'd, I'd picture me throwing it out of a window because I had so much anger and resentment inside of me against God for what he allowed to happen to me my entire life. For me, I'm a huge believer in predestination. God has a plan from beginning to end. There can't be any deviation from it because it is at the end, the ending would change. And he's already thought it all the way through from beginning to end. So I think the God thing was the, one of the hardest for me to deal with because again, Matt's suggestion is sit with it. And I'm like, what do you mean? It hurt so much the first time. I got to sit with this too. Because I kept getting blocked. Well, read the Bible. What does the Bible say? Or, you know, talk to God, pray. I might as well have been talking to a wall because I wasn't getting any answers. I wasn't getting any relief. You know, I'm, I'm actively trying to seek out a relationship with you. And then I got to thinking about it. And, you know, the more I thought about it, the angrier I got because I actually sat in this class over in that chair and Dan, he was sitting in his chair and he said, he said to me that God just wants a relationship with you. He wants nothing more than for you, you and him to have a, a loving, kind relationship with each other. And I raised my hand and I said, how in the hell does God expect me to have a relationship with him when he destroyed my ability to have any relationship with anybody when I was five years old? And now he wants me to come to him when he allowed all that to happen to me? This is where in the back of my mind, forgiveness started playing a role in all this. At that point, he did this to me. All that pain, all that suffering, that's God's fault. That's his plan. What's the pain in that suffering? How do you justify destroying a child's innocence at such an, a young age? And why wasn't there someone to protect him? Mainly you, me talking to God. Why didn't you step in? Why didn't you stop it? So I was angry for, I mean, I, I think I sat with this for, I don't know, a month, two months, a long time. The more I sought out God, the angrier I became and the more I, I wanted to rebel against what was happening. But what I didn't realize that I realize now is that I was praying more. I was talking to God more. I was trying to find answers that I couldn't, I couldn't get, but yet I still wasn't getting any answers. I wasn't getting anywhere. So the only thing I could do 
was flee. But I thought about what's your role in this, Jeremy? Why are you so mad? What's going on? So I went out to the smoke pit over in the 17 and I sat out there and I'm like, God help me. I'm tired of carrying these chains. Been weighing me down for so long and I can't do it by myself anymore. I'm tired of being mad. I'm tired of being upset. And I left it there. I left it in God's hands to deal with however he saw fit. And I don't know how I just let it go in that moment, but I did. There have been three recurring songs that I found since I've been here. If anybody knows who Lauren Daigle is, I'd strongly suggest listening to some of her music. It's changed my life. It's a song called You Say, uh, Rescue, and Look Up Child. And when I went down into the laundry room, I heard, you know, I got down to my desk and I heard this, the song Rescue playing in the back of my mind. And specifically where it says, I will send you an arm to find you. And again, it's like that little inner voice that I heard in the chapel that said, let it go. And like a couple minutes later, God sent me an army of guys to help. The guy, Kevin, he said, look, he said, I found something that might help you. And it was, you know, two chapters, random chapters and verses out of the Bible. And, you know, we sat there and we read them and they had absolutely nothing to do with forgiveness or what I was struggling with. And I go through the day with no answers and we get up into the trauma healing group and we start talking about what else but forgiveness again. I, I'd started this trauma healing group that they have in here. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Fuck forgiveness is where I was at. Just too egregious, too bad. My stepfather don't deserve my forgiveness and neither does God. Why should I forgive them for what they did to me? Because in that moment, forgiveness was them saying sorry and me and accepting it. That was my understanding of forgiveness at the time. So again, I'm angry. I'm full of rage and I, I don't want to hear what any of them have to say about me forgiving my stepfather or me forgiving God or forgiving anybody else who had harmed me in my life. Some people just don't deserve forgiveness. Fast forward to the next day, I'm still mad. And I, I again, no relief, none. Where's my relief? Where are you? You've, the Bible says you, you walk with us, you're always here. Why are you not here? Why are you not helping? I'm tired of dealing with this. Please help me let it go. The next day, I'm tired and I'm mad. I went to bed and somebody knocked on my bunk. And I'm like, who's waking me up? And it was God knocking on my bunk. Just happened to be John Winchester that he sent to do it. So, hey man, you gotta get up and go to trauma class. So I got up, you know, pissed off that I was getting up and had to go. And I went and again, I didn't want to hear. It. And for a third time, the topic of the day is forgiveness again. And I'm like, look, I've had enough of this forgiveness for a day. It's not worth my time. I ain't trying to hear it. So I sat down and I don't remember what we were talking about, but we were talking about it says in the Bible where God is sorry for sending man to earth and for all the things that we've done. When they said the word sorry, something piqued my attention. Sorry is not right. Sorry implies a mistake. There can't be any mistakes with God, none. So that word's not right. And for some reason, sorrowful struck in my mind. And when I translated sorrowful, I saw something. I saw emotion from God. Not like I looked at a person and saw him crying or anything, but I, I saw what emotion looked like. You know, what, what sorrow looked like. Sadness, I guess is a better way to put it. And this is kind of where this whole spiritual awakening, I guess you can call it, started. When I saw God's sadness, I started thinking about, you know, whether God had the ability to have emotion. And I thought, I knew right off, he has to. God can't give us anything that he didn't experience first. How would he even know what that looked like unless he had the ability to feel it and share it? And that's when I saw, you know, 
the emotion of what sorrow was. After that, we started talking about kids and how we teach our kids certain things, how we discipline our children. Laura Scott did. And when she said kids, something immediately clicked inside of me that became relatable. And it was, think of it like, when you punish your kids and you make them cry, for you guys who have kids, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you was the first thing that popped into my mind. I heard God saying that to me. This is gonna hurt me more than it hurt you. And I said that, that immediately became relatable to me. I immediately understood what he meant. I took that personally. The trauma that I went through, it's gonna hurt me more because I had to put you through it. But in the end, it's gonna make you stronger, more character. And I saw these things. So we got to talking about that and we, we split up in these four groups. The next moment, what they do is they give us these chapters and verses and they split them up and give them to everybody random, completely random. I sat down in the group and Matt handed us ours. And when he gave me the, the chapters, the two chapters and the verses, they were the exact same two that that guy gave me five o'clock that morning. Exact same two. Again, I heard this inner voice say, are you ready? Here it comes. And it gave me cold chills. And I got to thinking, okay, what? I felt a physical feeling. I don't know what it was. Thought it was just, I don't know how to explain it other than the Holy Spirit came into me to give me insight, knowledge, to be able to see what I needed to see. But it wasn't just that. It was my soul being mended. Because I remember when I told you, I came here and my soul was broken from what happened. I felt healed in that moment. And I think the only reason that happened was because I was able to experience the Holy Spirit inside of my body. I, I stayed with that feeling and I'm sitting trying to process all everything that's happening because it happened pretty quick. And we start talking. I don't even remember what they were talking about, but I was, I, I was stuck inside of like a, a, a movie. I started to see visions. Like you recall certain memories in your head. They're just pictures. They're not constant movies. So I'm sitting there trying to think of what was going on inside of me and what I felt, what I saw as I looked up to God and I saw God not looking directly at him, I saw something that I perceived to be God. And I saw him crying. I saw that sorrow in his eyes for the trauma that he put me through. Then I looked down to my right and I saw Jesus being crucified on the cross. I saw his back being opened by them beating him. And then on my right, on my left, I looked over and I saw my dad beating me and I felt the same pain. I just look back to Jesus and I see him getting hit harder. And I look up to God and I see God crying harder. I saw more than just sadness, more than just sorrow, I saw true pain. And I looked at Jesus and I saw him taking it like a champ. And I looked at me crying as a little kid with my back being broken open by my father. And I looked forward and I looked at my dad my stepdad, my abuser. And I was able to look forward a little further and I saw his dad doing it to him. And again, I heard a voice inside of me say, hurt people, hurt people. And I realized what that meant, what it was. That I don't think he knew what he was doing. And when that happened, I forgave him for what he did to me. Not only did I forgive him, I thanked him in that moment because it, without what happened to me and what was done to me, I wouldn't have seen what I saw. I wouldn't have a solid foundation in my faith. I know God exists. God was with me in that moment. God, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, all three were in that room with me, helping heal me from all that pain, all that torture, all that trauma.
so for that, I was thankful. And I forgave him. I mean, the forgiveness is just a small piece of it, but to be able to thank your abuser for doing what he did, that was what I needed. That was what I needed to get past all that. I'll read this last thing, what I found. After I left that class, after I left the trauma healing group, right after that, I do individual sessions with Laura Scott. Cause you know, two hours of trauma healing is not enough. I need three. I'd always go down there and I'd look out the window and next to her window, I found this little poem. I've always liked my people a bit damaged, a bit rough around the edges, a bit difficult to stereotype, a bit stranger than the normal crowd. I like people whose eyes tell stories and whose smiles have fought through wars. If you're perfect, chances are we aren't going to get on. If you're one of the cool kids, chances are you won't like me. You see, what I want is authentic. What I want to see is your purity. I want to see the way you wear your scars. I want to see how brave you are with your vulnerability. How emotionally naked do you let the world see you? Your damage may not be beautiful, but has made you exquisite. It makes you original, different, and one of my kind of people, because people like you are the most incredible thing about this world. That was God sending that to me, telling me that my scars make me beautiful. Everything that I've been through makes me unique and exquisite. And um, I think that's pretty much it. And that is Jeremy's story. Thanks so much for listening. And just a reminder, even if this is the only episode of A Shot of Hope you've ever listened to, could you fill out the survey? It's a few questions to help me make this podcast better. My goal is to make one of your favorite shows. The only way I can do that is if you share your thoughts. So the link is hum.page.link slash survey. That's in the show notes as well. I really appreciate it. All questions on that survey are courtesy of the brilliant team at Edison Research and the form, the Google form, is adapted from one created by the inimitable Evo Terra. Thanks to Evo and the Edison Research folks for that. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Vic King, with music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for including me and for including Jeremy in your day. It's good to be included. Catch you next time on A Shot of Hope.